0: Welcome to uh, the uh, this weekly episode of uh, Robert and Yaron riffing on the state of the world. Uh, hey, Robert, how's it going? Hey, Yaron, I'm doing well, thank you. Good, good. So we're gonna uh, we thought we talk today a little bit about kind of the macro macroeconomics, um, the state of the U.S. economy over the last few decades. I think it's it's interesting given that. Uh, given where we are today, with uh, rising inflation, uh, a Fed motivated to uh, uh, crush inflation, they claim. We'll see. Uh, it it it's a little reminiscent of the 1970s, which is a long time ago, and it is a little surprising that from the 1980s until today, we re- this is the first time we've seen inflation. Inflation was kind of a Given, given fiat money, given um, the fact that the dollar went off any kind of uh, gold standard, any kind of peg that ever existed, it is a little surprising that after the the inflation of the 1970s and the fear of inflation and everything that happened then, that we just haven't seen it since, we haven't seen it since. It just it, There have been a lot of scares. There have been a number of times where people thought maybe inflation uh price inflation, consumer inflation was rising, but it really hasn't happened. Uh, What do you think are some of the reasons why we've gone through such a long period of time where inflation just wasn't present? I think a big part of it is the fear
1: that when inflation is a recent traumatic concern and you don't have a good sense of why inflation went up and so you don't know how you would deal with it in the future there's a strong tendency to
0: try and avoid getting back in that situation well and and dealing with it in the early 80s was very painful so that that pain of actually dealing with it was remembered it's like there's only one way to
1: deal with it which is to crush demand and and i'm not claiming that as a fact i'm saying that that's the one way it's been shown And so if there are other ways, we don't know them. So it'd be much better to avoid that situation. Uh, It it was politically costly. It was reputationally costly. Nobody benefited from that. And when I mean that, I mean uh, policymakers. I'm sure there are people who benefit from it. So when you are in the 80s and you're getting disinflation, you just want to keep that going. You get in the 90s. Inflation is seemingly very low and mortgage interest rates are at 7% and everyone thinks this is amazing, but you're still interested in keeping that trend. And then you get into the 21st century and you have a a combination of what became possible, uh, which was a massive shift in how manufacturing of physical goods happen and international trade and a shift towards electronic products where you don't have to stamp the albums and distribute them you can start just selling songs on itunes or eventually streaming and so when you have a an economy that is more and more focused on the consumer side on uh, virtual goods, and and that's true whether we're talking about physical goods or legitimately virtual goods. But if you're talking about physical goods, we all carry an iPhone that's replaced five different consumer electronics products that were all expensive uh, in the past. And so you're cramming everything into a smaller and smaller physical footprint, and some of it not at all. So you end up with a opportunity to increase the supply of what people want at very very low cost. Uh, it's you know the difference between a, having everyone needing to own a car and having rideshare. With the rideshare, you can have a lot fewer cars. But rideshare, you can't both, you you, know, you and I can't use the car to go different places at the same time. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Netflix, we can use Netflix to watch different movies at the same time. And it's at, at virtually no incremental cost. So everything was working. Uh, first of all, the attitude of policymakers and, and the priorities there. The second, uh, you had an increase in the uh, efficiency of manufacturing of, of new products. And Then you had ingenuism, you had a rapid spread of new ideas where the best practices and the the best business models could uh, show up everywhere virtually at the same time. And people moving towards virtual goods that could be given away for free like Google, but be incredibly valuable and incredibly lucrative for Google to give away for free. So that's a, a unique situation in history. And it seemed to make low inflation almost inevitable. And then during the financial crisis, everyone was worried about disinflation and the zero bound and all of the the potential problems that not having inflation would bring. And it was a fundamental shift in in attitude. People weren't fearing inflation anymore. So when COVID hit, it was like, we can do whatever the hell we want. And it can't possibly cause any problems. And of course, the laws of economics hadn't been repealed. They had just shifted. And so you had now a shift towards different demand because people were stuck at home uh, and you had a, a constraint on supply. So international trade is no longer growing. Uh, you have uh, just shutdowns in general. And so you end up with a lot of a less provided of the products that people are now wanting. And the obvious example is housing, where people suddenly needed more housing because they were home all the time. And the supply of housing reacts very slowly to demand. And so demand goes up, supply is is similar, and boom, prices shoot up. But that was happening in all sorts of little niches of the economy and no one thought like, oh, house prices are going up, isn't that great? Well, you know, you own a house maybe. Uh, but nobody thought about the fact that, um, and I shouldn't say nobody, no, no policymakers uh, embodied the fact that the regime had shifted, that the tides that had kept inflation low, regardless of whatever Washington did, had now flipped and what Washington did might actually be really important.
0: Well, and what Washington did was, was you know, monetary, dramatic monetary expansion and, and a dramatic increase in the money supply. Uh, it seemed like they did that in 08, 09, but if you actually look at the M2 numbers, you know, the monetary, uh, the, the, the quantity of money out there in the economy didn't grow that much. It was mostly held in reserves and, and uh, but during COVID, uh, you know, so there's this old phrase of helicopter money. They literally did the equivalent of helicopter money, which is basically giving people money, which then turns immediately into people spending that money. And when you're restricting supply by keeping people at home, when supply chains are broken, when the Chinese are doing lockdowns and all kinds of stuff like that, uh, you, you get what we're experiencing right now, which is uh, raising, uh, raising prices. And it wasn't immediate, of
1: course, because when you're stuck at home, you can't really spend a lot of money on things other than those virtual goods, which can be provided at very low cost. So we all end up uh, with with the Zoom, but and people people were buying more streaming, uh, more streaming options. But it it was it's very easy to provide that at relatively low cost and an infinite amount. Uh, there there weren't going to be any constraints on that. But it was predictable that when we finally got over COVID, uh, figuratively, not literally, that we would have to get a match between supply and demand for all the other things that can't be provided or can't be provided as easily. Because I hate to say they can't be provided because that's a course where we're completely missing the boat, which is how do you make it so that, uh, how do you remove barriers to, entrepreneurs providing the things that people are dying to pay for. And we see, we know they're dying to pay for it because you see prices going up. And if you had a, an easy channel to increase supply, then you wouldn't have inflation. Uh, but that's not the conversation that, that I'm hearing out of Washington. And it's a much better conversation because it involves people getting what they want and other people getting rich providing it, as opposed to people not getting what
0: they want and the economy having to go into recession so that they stop wanting it. And and looking back at the last time inflation was crushed in the 1980s, part of the crushing of inflation was exactly that. That is, if we think about the early 1980s, this is a period of deregulation uh late 70s early 80s saw a lot of the government getting out of the way and allowing supply to be created it is a period of a lot of innovation on wall street to uh provide growing investment for the kind of uh for the kind of uh, production that is necessary to kind of reduce prices you know the first fiber optics cables are laid down across the country because of high yield bonds and all, all kinds of things like that are going on uh, American businesses are becoming more efficient because of hostile takeovers and things like that. So it was indeed a period. The, the inflation, you know, Volcker gets all the credit for crushing inflation and he deserves some or, some or a lot of it. But there was a lot going on in addition to that. And, it, and of course, China coming online, that is that is supply chains changing, production costs going down, globalization and ingenuism not just being limited to what was going on in the US and deregulation, and that's all good, but then applying to a much, they're now a global space, particularly starting in the 90s with the, with the internet um, and with, uh, you know, with, as we like to say, 8 billion people suddenly coming online and suddenly being able to contribute ideas to, uh, to solving all these kind of problems. And yet, that is the one piece that seems to be completely absent of the discussion today. They want to do, they kind of talk about doing what Volcker does, but they're not even serious about that, really. Uh, But there's almost nobody talking about deregulation on 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 a large scale, anyway, close to scale we saw in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, what what if we're doing analogies? And of course, neither of us believe the the future will
1: be exactly like the past. It's a useful analogy. Uh, we are not in the late seventies, early eighties. We are in the early mid seventies when inflation you know inflation showed up in the sixties, and it was in the the seventies that you had the the oil shock, and then suddenly inflation was significant, and nobody knew what to do with it, and then. You have a, um, when everyone's spending all their money on, on gas, they're spending less elsewhere. So there's a shift in terms of consumption patterns, which then hampers economic growth because you're set up to provide one set of, of goods. And now people are looking for a different set of goods. And it, it's a very confusing time and all policymakers could do is hope it gets better. Cause they didn't know what to do. And I'm not claiming that I would have known what to do. I don't even uh, think it, that anyone knows exactly what to do now. But they weren't looking to try and discover that it was more of a okay well the oil this oil thing happened but that's it's already happened maybe if we just wait this out everything will be okay and that's where we've been for the last 12 months is let's let's hope this is is transitory because then we won't have to actually figure out what to do because we don't know what to do and we
0: don't know how to know what to do well as you know i i think there were people who knew what to do in the 70s and i think we know what to do today but um well, but that's 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 that's, that's an important reason, point, yeah, and there, there are definitely there are definitely
1: things we should have been doing a year ago and should be doing today. Sure. And, but once, even when those things start happening, deregulation in the later seventies and then the monetary uh, regime shift in the early eighties, it took years. Oh, absolutely! Particularly on the production side, I mean, you can change monetary policy pretty quickly. Financial. Mm-hmm
0: movements happen much faster than most of what happens in the real world.
1: So it would happen
0: faster today, given how much is electronic, given how much is digital. Um, Possibly, possibly. We don't know yet. But the point is we need to start. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the oil, the oil is a great example of that. You know, oil went through this amazing innovation, right? This amazing face of, of, uh, Uh, you know, somebody applying ingenuity to the problem of, there's not a lot of oil in the ground anymore in the United States and fracking was invented and it's brilliant. And uh, instead of spurring that on, uh, when when other markets are shutting down with regard to oil uh, and as prices are booming, we've got a variety of pressure, whether it's uh, from institutional investors based on ESG or whether it's from the government itself, uh, disencouraging or, or, or making it more difficult for frackers to go out and frack and not just in the US globally.
1: I know it's fracking crazy, but, but in all seriousness, I don't know that if I were running a fracking company and I know that people are running fracking companies, I don't know that I would, I would want to make big investments right now because the writing on the wall is pretty clear about the long term. And these are long term investments. And if you so you have the choice, you can either make money at $115 a barrel, which is you know two or three times your your decent return point. I was going to say break even, but it's certainly more than two times break even. So maybe it's twice a great return on investment and three times break even. But you're just printing money, and what you would normally do is is grow your business. But your alternative is to just print money. Yep. And the way that this has been framed is, I don't think uh, I don't think fossil fuels is the answer to the energy issue, um, because, and I don't mean that like I philosophically believe that, or I don't think it could be, but I think it, given the world that we're in, and given the fact that that uh, global warming is is being being made a priority over other forms of human well being, mm-hmm. that the solution needs to be discovered elsewhere. And you know, you know, I'm a big advocate for uh, exploring the, the potential of nuclear power. I think fusion, unfortunately, is gonna be a distraction. It's gonna be like solar where we're five years away from something interesting for 30 years. And then eventually it shows up, but for the next 30 years, it's not gonna be a... It's unfortunately unlikely to be a big contributor, but. Modular, modern fission reactors, uh, getting on the learning curve with that, that could be making a difference five years from now. It's still five years from now. It's not, nothing is going <laughs> to, nothing is going to bail us out in the next five months. It's going to, the world's going to be the way it is, but we could be doing things now. We could have been doing things five years ago that would help us discover what are the real opportunities, but we've not, we've been in a, a static Uh, and I'll say fantasy world uh, around renewables, where we're not looking at the full portfolio of renewables. We're not looking at the stable portfolio of renewables. Uh, Hydro is pretty much tapped out, but geothermal and and nuclear might have the same kind of impact that fracking did. Uh, Because if you look at oil price graphs, which I think people are looking at a lot more than they have for decades, (laughs) Is, you know, we're back to prices that we saw 10 years ago and prices that we saw eight years ago and the prices that we saw in the early 80s. Uh, But overall, if you compare the price of oil or gas or any of this to, say, the cost of a college education, it looks very reasonable. Absolutely. uh, Because a lot has been figured out on how to make it more efficient.
0: You know, one other aspect of, that I think is making it harder to get out of the current crisis is kind of in a sense kind of a backlash against um, globalization, a, you know, a a sudden hunkering down of building walls and and looking internally rather than externally. And I think that both affects trade, but it also affects information flows. It also potentially affects, um, you know, uh, the the whole idea of ingenuism, the, the idea that that you know, ideas can be generated anywhere and they can be built on top of one another because people are trying to build uh, uh, walls, not a, you know, China, Russia, uh, and, and but even even here in the United States and, and Europe. And I think it's going to be interesting
1: to see how that plays out because that's definitely a force in the world today. And the counterbalancing force is that we all got a lot more used to interacting and collaborating remotely. So, you know, it's, it's hard for me to predict whether that's going to be a significant problem. I think that the, that the actual barriers of, of COVID and the fact that the world is... So if you're looking, if you're trying to, to be a global entrepreneur, you're at the whim of at least a half dozen important governments Mm -hmm. around the world. And that's just a a different level of risk than when you are just dealing with, you know, your local government or the federal government or the Chinese government, you know, one. Uh, And it doesn't really, it's not really diversification. In a sense, there's some diversification. Just when China was shut down, everyone else was, was shutting down, everyone else was opening back up. But when there are bottlenecks everywhere, uh it it it's the wrong kind of diversification because you end up with all these critical points and if
0: one of them is always out then you never run officially yes and we're definitely moving at least it seems like ideologically the world is moving away from the kind of interconnected idea that you know hopefully there are counter forces against that and hopefully that'll it, it it'll come back but it certainly seems to be right now unpopular to think in terms of an interconnected world and, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, the, kind of, the kind of world that led, I think, to the great moderation in, during the early 2000s where uh, supply chains were super efficient and uh, there was a huge movement of people, of goods, of capital and, and everything flowed pretty smoothly at very, very low costs and, uh, and very, very low. I mean, what you're bringing up about different countries is this idea of political risk which I think for a long time, everybody assumed was basically zero or very low. And uh, suddenly, partially because of the war in Ukraine and partially just because of the attitude towards China, political risk is now much, much higher and that kind of slows collaboration down. And you couldn't have predicted any of that. If, you, if we went back
1: to the late 70s, early 80s, and you said, look, inflation is actually not gonna be a problem for the next 40 years, it's going to continuously fall. It's going to, uh, you know, approach you know, levels at which people start worrying about it being too low. Uh, how do you think that happened? It wouldn't be obvious in advance because people had to figure this stuff out, and they were they had the opportunity with the lower low, you know, the low cost and falling cost of uh, transporting things by sea and the increased connectivity that allowed collaboration across the planet. And so that's that's where I think we are today, uh, that we don't know what's going to uh, come out of this you know, massive shock to what how the world was running and, and running really well. Uh, and if we can get give people the freedom to discover that sooner rather than later it'll make a huge impact on the well-being of people on the planet and not so much you know people in America who are generally going to be just fine, but for the people who are just starting to catch the wave, people in in Asia, people in Africa, people in South America, uh, that if we don't if we and I mean this not as a collective we, I mean as each of us individually, um, aren't figuring out how to make the new world work, then it's, it's going to be an enormous human tragedy.
0: Yeah, and, and there's another tragedy here in the sense that, I mean, you say here in America we'll be fine, and, and, and that's probably true, but we've run the numbers, like if, if the U.S. economy grows at 1-2% a year versus if the U.S. economy grows at 4-5% a year, the missed opportunity of that lack of growth is a massive human tragedy it's you know in every respect in terms of the quality and and kind of life that we could have and that the poor among us could have even though the poor in america are not as poor or nowhere near as poor as the poor elsewhere they're still poor you know the missed opportunity the opportunity cost of not getting it right is is it's just massive
1: and that's a really good point and that, that you know we'll be fine but our kids our grandkids they won't be relative to where things are, and that's of course always the challenge. Is uh, the people, people and countries get to a certain stage of, of life where they're more interested in companies, they're more interested in holding on to what they have, than uh, exploring what could possibly be. Uh,
0: well, and that's and that's the sense in which you know ingenuism, you know, what we really. What the answer to these questions is almost always is is you know free people up to figure out solutions to these things, and the more people you free up, uh, under conditions where they really have the ability, uh, without asking for permission, to solve problems and go out there and and get stuff done, uh, the the faster we get out of the problems that we that that have been created, uh, and 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 that's true globally, that's true in America, and that's true everywhere in the world.
1: Yeah, we and we solve problems that we didn't even know we had, which is a really yep. interesting question. So maybe it's not just us, because the, the problems for us is, is that is human mortality. But you know, that's that's a problem that is slowly being solved, and you know, could end up being um, relevant to us, even though I always think it's relevant to our kids and our grandkids. Um, there's always something, and and not having a, not having an ingenuous attitude towards. You know what great things are possible now that given everything we know that we didn't know 10 years ago and everything we have that we didn't have 10 years ago what are the great things we can do today as opposed to look at the great stuff we have now it's a it's a it's an i, I want to distinguish it from the treadmill like the the rat race because it's not that it's yep. like uh, you climb to the top of the mountain and there's another mountain, except you're not really climbing. You're riding a jetpack with a, a spaceship or something. It's because that's our, our natural. As humans, we're naturally uh, cautious when we're in a good situation. And that that's the time when you can afford to be the most ambitious. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. All right. Well, on that positive note, um thanks Robert. I'll see you again next week. Thanks, Jaron Okay. Take care.